Hey there, creatives. Thanks for tuning in to this episode number 80 of the Creative Psychotherapist podcast. I'm really, really excited to share this deep conversation that I had with Victor Yalom. And um, just a little bit about him. Um, he's very humble. <laughs> Uh, but he's super creative. He makes these amazing therapy cartoons that are hysterical, uh, which I highly recommend that you take a peek um, there on the website, um, www.sfpsychologist.com. Um, he's a cartoonist there, but he also is the founder of psychotherapy.net, which hosts a large platform of uh, video footage of uh, some of the founding folks in the field of psychotherapy actually facilitating um, in you know, their specific approach. So for example, um, if you were interested in family therapy, right? If you're interested in family therapy, there's videos with um, Dr. Salvador Mnuchin um, on there. If you were interested in group therapy, let's say there's exclusive videos um, of his father, Irvin Yalom. Um, if you wanted to understand more about gestalt therapy with children, if you're a play therapy fan, uh, there's a video with Violet Oaklander. Um, there's just so much great content on this site that um, I highly recommend you check it out and there's different levels of memberships. Um, so no matter what your price point is, there's something that could work for you. And um, the, the content is excellent. So you could have a basic account um, or you could go with an unlimited account. And for an unlimited account, you have access to the collection of videos. Uh, there are over 300 videos of um, different, uh, you know, leaders in the field teaching how to actually apply the theory and practice, which, you know, we don't always get um, as we're training. And so this collection provides that you get to see people uh, uh, actually facilitating in a way that you probably wouldn't have access to, or maybe you saw some of these films a little bit in grad school. Uh, but with the unlimited plan, um, you get unlimited access. They have like a short series called Mastery and Minutes Collection. So you can just watch short clips to really build out your skill set. 
Um, but then with that unlimited plan, you also have access to premium content such as Irving Yalom and the Art of Psychotherapy and EFT step-by-step. Um, and with that, you also have access to uh, 20 continuing ed credits. And no matter what your credentialing body requires, there's probably a CE approval through the site that they have. I know they have NBCC, APA, um, some different state uh, boards that are specific. Certain states will only, you know, allow, like New York will only allow New York's board approved. So they do have that. Um, and it's $468 a year. So for access for a whole year, it's really quite great, especially with the 20 uh, continuing education credits that you could have with that. Um, and for listeners of the episode, um, he has generously given a promotional code for $100 off. So you could get that unlimited access for $368, um, which is amazing. And the promo code is lowercase R-E-I-N-A 100. And the 100 is 100. So that's Raina 100. And um, I hope you take advantage of that. Even if you don't go with the unlimited, if you went with the standard, um, you would still be getting a great deal for $268 to have access to the collection, um, the Mastery in Minutes collection as well. And like I said, there's so many amazing uh, therapist work that is captured in video that you can learn from and enhance your practice with. So definitely want to check out psychotherapy.net. And again, if you decide to sign up for a membership, remember to use that promo code RAINA100. All right. I really hope that you enjoy this in-depth conversation that I had with Victor. Um, I was hoping to spend a little more time talking about his creative process, but it was so nice to be able to talk with him about his perspectives on the field and um, kind of challenging uh, certain um, ways of being in our field. And it was just a really rich conversation. And I, I hope that you enjoy it as well. The Creative Psychotherapist is the official podcast of the Creative Clinician's Corner, a practice building resource for creative psychotherapists. TCP Podcast is the cast for creative, expressive, and experiential focused psychotherapists curious to learn how to design, build, and scale a thriving private practice. 
Your host, Raina Lombardi, interviews successful therapists about the tools and strategies they have used to develop creative, focused practices. They also talk about the products, services, and side hustles they have developed, using their knowledge and creativity to enhance their therapy practices, make a greater impact in their communities, and diversify their income streams. Welcome. Now here's your host, Raina Lombardi. Thanks for listening to the Creative Psychotherapist Podcast. I'm your host, Raina Lombardi, and I'm delighted to welcome my next guest. His name is Victor Yalom, and he's been a practicing psychologist since 1989. Uh, he is the founder of psychotherapy.net, where um, he produces training videos for therapists, uh, blogs, and cartoons, which he creates, and hopefully we'll talk about today. And I highly recommend that you go to that website, psychotherapy.net forward slash humor to fully appreciate the therapy cartoons. I think you'll enjoy them. Welcome, Victor. Thanks so much for being here. It's, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. So I'm wondering where we should begin. You've been practicing since 89, which is a really long time. Um, <laughs> uh, Hard to believe. I, I, I uh, have worked with lots of therapists and produced videos of great therapists. And I recall writing introductions to them or saying to them, you've, you've been practicing for 40 years or 50, in some cases, 50 years. And suddenly uh, I'm in a position where I've been doing this for a little while myself now. Yeah. So what led you to get into film production for therapists? I feel like that's a very specialized niche um, from the work of being a practicing um, therapist. Right. It's a good question. It, like I think many endeavors, happened somewhat fortuitously. And I know your podcast focuses quite a bit on creativity, as the title implies. And yeah. You think of so many things that happen in, in the world. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the major companies like Google, these are some grad students fooling around in their dorm room. And, you know, we all know where that, that became. So, um, Sometimes things are more deliberate, but a lot of the things that happen in the world are really putting one foot forward in front of the other. And the first thing is the first step. So I certainly didn't, didn't set out to create, create a business, although I've always been somewhat entrepreneurially inclined, but in very small ways. I simply, I, I was studying with uh, someone I considered a great master therapist, James Bugenthal, an existential humanistic psychologist, not, not widely known outside of the existential humanist world, which, mm -hmm. which is not mainstream these days. And he was, he was, he was just a brilliant teacher, a therapist, and he was uh, not surprisingly getting older and uh, we kept saying we need to get this guy on film too. Mm. And so Buddy and I eventually recruited some people willing to be clients and, and a videographer and ended up making 
uh, a video at that at time it was a it was a video tape VHS, oh yeah <laughs> uh, of him doing a couple sessions uh, with a client and you know we were not we just wanted to make that available and and one thing led to another and we ended up I ended up producing more videos and going from VHS to DVD to to, to streaming uh but the, the central idea of it, the, the passion that still drives me is that we are a very strange field in many ways, in many mm-hmm. ways, good way, in good ways. But in terms of the way we get trained, generally, it's unlike any other profession or almost any profession where you learn by a variety of methods, but including watching skilled people at work, which mm-hmm. could be your boss, could be a mentor. Uh, and having them watch you and giving you feedback. And that's true whether you're a plumber or a dancer or a musician or an accountant. Um, and we get very, very little of that. I mean, in my grad school, I, I don't think I ever saw anyone. I saw some, some very old video of poor quality. Mm-hmm. That uh, uh, So the driving force was let's Let's be able to look at skilled practitioners from a variety of approaches and see how they do their work, not just the theory you can get in books, but right. how they talk, how they interact with clients, what their pacing is, what their body language is, what the client's body language is, and, uh, uh, and you know, learn from that, mm-hmm. among other things. So that, yeah, that's how it started. That is, that is true. I think a lot of young people coming out of graduate training programs sometimes feel that way, even in their internship experience where they didn't have a lot of opportunities to do a lot of that direct observation. It was almost like, you know, we don't have time for that. You have to go out and be with the people, (laughs) Um, which is unfortunate because we, there's so much value in being able to observe somebody else facilitating. Um, I don't think it's an issue of time. I think it's an issue of mindset and we all get mm. trapped in mindsets. I mean, stunning example in the last couple of years is the move from you know, in-person work and including in-person therapy, a very small subset of the work environment. And I, I was guilty of that. Uh, you know, I had an office and I had employees drive, spend their time driving, coming to work, some from some distance and had some flexibility in terms of people working at home, but was of the mindset that I and others needed to get in their cars and drive and work together. And lo and behold, uh, COVID happened and, uh, you know, we found we could work remotely and we could innovate and, and actually be able to do things uh, better in, in some ways. Um, now I know... <laughs> I was making a point. Yes. So my point is the idea that we don't have time to observe. I don't think it's a matter of time at all. I think it's, it's, we have legitimate concerns about confidentiality, but yeah, a lot of that is, and we have these ideas of the 50 minute hour and all, all these sorts of things, these kind of cherished notions that have some reason they came into existence, but Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, deserve to be questioned. So you can, mm. you know, whether it's watching on video, which is so easy to do now to create videos, uh, or, you know, in the old days, you used to observe families through one-way mirrors. You don't need to do that now. You, 
you could sit in on a, on a session with your teacher or supervisor. It's mm -hmm. the clients are usually not the ones who are concerned. If if you tell a you know if if you are a supervisor at a clinic and you say part of what we do here at the clinic is to train the next generation of therapists. And one of the ways we train them is to have them sit in mm -hmm. on initial sessions or some sessions. Most clients would be delighted to have someone else in the room, maybe giving another perspective. Uh, yeah. I think that idea doesn't even occur uh, to, to, to supervisors or trainers just because, or professors, just because that's not the way things have been done. Yeah, I know in my practice, I've taken on graduate interns, and it has been rare that a client didn't feel comfortable um, with somebody else coming in and observing. And usually, the, in those cases, there were valid reasons, like they were still not really trusting of the process or something else going on there that we, they weren't ready to be vulnerable in the presence of another person, but by and large, everybody was all the clients for the most part were open to having students in. Um, and I think it is a valuable experience to have that ability to, to learn in that way. Yeah. Our videos show master therapists, you know, some well-known, some well-known and others up and coming. Mm -hmm. Some people I've connected with, and they may not be well known at all. And I've helped to hopefully put them on the map. Uh, that's one of the fun things I get to do is be a sort of talent scout. Um, so you, people have the opportunity to deserve to observe skilled practitioners. But mm -hmm. I hinted at the other thing, which is have your own work observed. And now that's so easy. You get a a $20 little tripod and put up your smartphone and record your sessions. And rather than going into uh, supervision and telling the supervisor what you thought happened, I, I have example always stands out. My uh, friend and colleague, Tony Ruminier, who's written quite a bit now, a number of books on deliberate practice in psychotherapy. Mm. And he uses the example of say you were in art school and you were painting a picture, you you know, can you imagine going to uh, 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 your teacher, uh, you know, in supervision and say, not bringing your painting, by the way, saying, I, uh, I did this painting, I'm working on a painting, but I've put a lot of blue in it. Um, do you think there's too much blue? You know, <laughs> it's just absurd. How could they know? They haven't even seen the painting. And that's right. how I think supervision often is. Uh, why not, you know, why not... Uh, you know, record your sessions, of course, with the client's consent, which I, in most cases is not a problem. If you tell mm -hmm. a, a, a client, I'm, in, I'm, I'm learning to be a better therapist and I'm dedicated to becoming the best I can. And would you mind if I record a session and, and share it just with a supervisor consultant? I think most clients would be yeah. impressed that you are that devoted mm -hmm. to your profession. Uh, do that and, you know, bring in a, sh show a clip of that. And not necessarily even a clip that you've selected because you want to show your best work, but maybe just fast forward to a random spot. And, you know, that's, that's another way to learn. Oh, that's a great, that's a, a great point. And I think in, um, in a lot of the recommendations 
on supervision, that that is part of it. Um, doing those process recordings and bringing them in and working through them together. But you're right in that it doesn't often happen for a variety of reasons. Yeah. In your experience in the profession, what things have you noticed have shifted for the positive in kind of this work that we do? For the positive? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say, no, I am not. <laughs> so yeah, I had my training in the 80s. And it, I, I am not that in touch with what, I know generally what's happened kind of in the classroom settings, but, but I'm, not, I'm not an active professor. So mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of hearsay or secondhand information. It probably started before my time when there was a more rigid adherence to whatever school or orientation, and those were often names of famous people. And I mean, in the earliest right. days, you were a Freudian or a Jungian or a Kleinian and all that. So mm -hmm. I think we generally moved beyond, you know, just doing the work of some one. Now, we all have mentors and teachers, and uh, whether there's someone we work with, you know, closely, or whether they're books that we follow. Mm -hmm. And I think it's good to learn from people, and you internalize that, and I've certainly internalized mentors of mine, you know, but then you, hopefully, as you go on in this profession, and in, in, in this life journey, you begin to integrate those, so... I would like to think that there's less kind of rigid adherence to one approach mm -hmm. and that you are exposed to different approaches uh, over time. At the same time, I have some concerns that there's, uh, you know, certain approaches that have gotten popular for one reason or other, you know, because there's more research done on them and then the, and they're called evidence-based, even though right. they're not necessarily superior uh, to other approaches. Um, so that's a concern, but you asked about positive things. I think uh, this transition to online therapy, there are positive aspects to that. It makes it more mm -hmm. accessible. And with some other things happening in the field, you know, there are, there's talk space and better help and various challenges to the business right. model of therapy. And there yes. are- Obviously, uh, therapists, even though we may be politically on the whole progressive or liberal, I think like most humans, we are conservative in that we grab on to the things we're used to doing. Mm. So it's threatening and challenging different business models, getting paid by the month for you know unlimited texting with a client. Well, that doesn't sound very good. And obviously we compare about our livelihood yeah I think shaking up these assumptions we have that you know therapy should be once a week for 50 minutes in the office that works for some people that obviously doesn't work for other people who don't have flexible work schedules who right. are in geographic areas that may not have therapists easily available that don't have the money to pay for that kind of service uh, I, I think it's 
uh, you know, we don't know what's what's going to happen five years, ten years from now. But I think a hybrid model where different alternatives, different types of help is available to different types of people with different types of problems. Uh, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, it's pretty exciting to see things change and evolve. Um, and I think that there is room for that, that it doesn't have to all look like the same thing um, to still be effective and helpful for people, which is really cool. I mean, just, you know, a quick reality check or a way to get a different perspective on things. I mean, think about yourself as an individual, as a human, as a client. Most humans have gone through periods of, of, of suffering in their life. And certainly, I think a lot of therapists, mm-hmm. most therapists have gone through some real personal crises, difficulties, challenges, pain. Yeah. I think that that's often what interests us in the field in the first place. And when you think of those times when you've really uh, been under duress, what, what what would you need? You know, what would be helpful to you? Would you want uh, a 50 minute in-person appointment or would you want something else? Would you want to be able to have something that was a little more flexible? Would you want to mm-hmm. be able to check in with your therapist, you know, during the week in a moment of crisis, right? you know? So I think that's one way to always think of things. What, what's best for the client. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course that's going to vary depending upon the individual and the stage of life that they're in the circumstances that they're experiencing. And um, it goes back to that idea. There's no like one size fits all approach um, to the work that we do. Now, I know you're you're you you know you're an art therapist, so I assume you incorporate a variety of creative techniques into your work. And uh, most therapists are not really taught that, and we're we're we work verbally, mm-hmm. uh, and there's so much room for expansion of bringing the body into therapy, bringing yeah movement, bringing drawing, what, what comes to your mind when you think of things that you do or you've observed that, that are helpful, that, that, that are outside of what is billed as traditional talk therapy? Gosh, I, I think that, you know, all of the expressive arts um, can be incredibly helpful in healing, whether it's drawing, dance, whether it's poetry or expressive writing um, or a blend music, um, all of those things are going to connect to people in different ways. Now, for some people, it won't. They would rather be in talk therapy and that's okay. Or maybe they want to do a hybrid of both. Um, And that's great too. Um, but I've also seen where, um, it's more intensive. I know one of the, one of the jobs that I had in the past where I was an in-home therapist, um, but it was intensive. So I would be with the client for a number of hours, not just a typical one 
hour or 50 minute session in an office, but a number of hours. And then we would go out into the community. We would rehearse and then we would go out into the community and really work on the skills in real time that, that we were developing. So I think that there are so many different ways we can affect change that don't follow the traditional prescription. Right. Right. I uh, think of a, a client, a young client I had, um, you know, young man, college age, and he was struggling with uh, many things, but shyness and, you know, wanting to, wanting to be able to date or have a girlfriend, but a very ambivalent or uh, conflicted, you know, is it okay to desire women sexually? Mm -hmm. uh, there's so many mixed messages about, you know, not objective, not objectifying women, which is a, a good goal, but, you know, <laughs> we're, 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 we're men, we're sexual beings, we're, we have biological urges or, and, uh, so I remember I was working downtown. I said, let's, let's go take a walk outside. Let's go through some shops and just, you know, tell me, you know, and then we, when we were out of earshot of other people, you know, who did, you know, who are you attracted to? What, what attracts you to different women? Uh, and just, uh, I think my, you know, my goal was just to normalize it. It's okay. It's okay to be mm -hmm. attracted to women and it's okay to have preferences. You don't, you know, yeah. You're not an equal opportunity employer. It's okay <laughs> that you're attracted to this type of woman versus that type of woman. That's part of the human experience. Yeah. I think we're seeing a lot more people go out into the world with walk and talk therapy um, and other kind of wilderness type therapy and um, those types of models as well. Which is really yeah, I, I, I would think it's still a very, very small percentage of therapeutic <laughs> hours spent that are outside of the realm of two people sitting in a chair and, and conversing. And even when you're conversing, there's this kind of certain rules of, you know, ingrained ideas about self-disclosure or non-self-disclosure, even if you're not psychoanal psychoanalytically oriented. I think those things you learn about distance and boundaries really limit us. And I think it's helpful certainly just to notice what, what you do and don't do as therapists and what your resistance is as a therapist to, to mm. even in a Zoom call where you suddenly are seeing someone from the shoulder up. So it's even harder to you forget about the body. Well, you can ask someone to stand up. You can stand up with mm -hmm. them. You can, you can, you know, you know, someone's talking about they're uncomfortable with their body or their weight. And, you know, normally in a room, you, you would see them. You could at least look and, you know, have some sense of who, the, what they look like. And, and in a Zoom, it may feel awkward. It may feel yeah. awkward to say, hey, you're talking about your body and how you feel. How about if you stand up and back away so I can see more of you? And, and that may feel intrusive or invasive, but you know, why, why not? And what, what are you uncomfortable with as mm -hmm. a therapist? Right. Opportunity to explore um, those things. So 
tell me a little bit more about your thoughts about these ideas of how we've been taught these very almost rigid thoughts about how we've been taught to conduct ourselves as therapists in order to really be effective. What do you think um, is necessary and what is not necessary? Hmm. Well, you can get down to the basics. What is necessary? You know, you don't have sex with your clients for one. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you think about what is best for your clients. Mm -hmm. And you don't always know, but that's the overarching principle. So how that gets, you know, you know, I referred to this idea of, of non-self-disclosure and neutrality. And I do believe, you know, this came from back from early days in our field and from psychoanalysis, even though the evidence uh, I've heard suggests Freud uh, himself, as people refer Freud himself, as if this, this <laughs> was quite, it was not a blank slate at all. You know, you hear stories that he would light up a celebratory guitar, a guitar. Why did I say guitar? That's a, a cigar. <laughs> light up a celebratory cigar uh, if he felt like he made a, a, a brilliant interpretation or something like that. And I'm not an expert on Freud, but uh, from what I've heard, he was not, he was far from a, a blank slate. Mm-hmm. I think some of those ideas of neutrality and maybe we don't believe in the blank slate anymore, that's severe, but I think this idea of kind of distance and boundaries and neutrality have, have stayed with us. Mm-hmm. And okay, there's certainly room for this idea that uh, we don't just use the therapy, we don't just disclose things willy-nilly for the, for, for the sake of it. It is a different type of relationship and conversation than Mm -hmm. normal conversations. And so we're explicit. We should be explicit about that, you know, but if, if a client, you know, we say we're going to be going on vacation for a couple of weeks and a client says, Oh, where are you going? Mm -hmm. Is, is the, is the first response should be, Oh, well, why do you ask? (laughs) That's just, that's just bizarre. And then, How's that yeah. going to feel? They're going to get this. I, they're going to get this rule. Oh, oh, I can't talk about this. I can't ask a therapy, the therapist a question. Now, you know, I don't know. Maybe with a particular client, but why not just tell them we're going there, and then say you're going on a luxurious vacation, and or to you're going to Tahiti or France, and you know, uh, you know, the client is really struggling to pay rent, then. Be, be in tune with that and say, mm-hmm. well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm going, going to France and then um, you might tune in, you know, if they, oh, they say, they give it, oh yeah, well, lucky you. Or, so yeah, I, I am, I am fortunate to be able to do that. And I'm wondering, I know you're really struggling with, mm-hmm. with, with, with finances. I wonder that how that is for you to, to, to hear that. You know, most of the time they they're, they're they don't care. They're happy for us, but that's that's one one example. But I just I think on the whole, 
it's it's hard. It's hard, especially when you're starting out. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, we have a lot of young young therapists that don't have a lot of life life experience that are mm-hmm. in the process of getting more comfortable with themselves, and and they may be treating someone who's older, who has a family, who has a lot more life experience in other ways. I think most therapists, when they're starting out, have some insecurities. Oh yeah. Is this, do I know enough? I mean, most therapists have, have those doubts throughout their career and that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's an ambiguous profession. But when they're starting out, do they know enough? How can they counsel? How can they be of help to someone who's struggling with things that they haven't struggled with? Mm-hmm. It's hard to be open and not have to come across as the expert. That doesn't mean you spill spill your guts, but you uh, try to be as authentic and engaged and non-presuming as you can be. And yeah. That's, that's not always easy. Yeah, I know you, you had said, you know, this, that, that word expert. And that sometimes I, I struggle with how to kind of, hold that on both sides of the coin, right? While yes, I may have done more education and training than this person that I'm in the room with, and I may have more knowledge in in some ways, but at the same time, I'm not an expert coming from their place of wisdom and their lived experience and their values. You know, they're the, the, the expert and I feel like sometimes that can be that expertise or the perception of the therapist as the expert in the room really magnifies this like power differential within the therapy space. I recall my mentor who I referred to before, James Bugenthal, saying something to the effect or writing something to the effect we are not an expert in our clients' lives. Mm-hmm. We are not an expert in how they should live their lives mm-hmm. or what decisions they should make. Yeah. We are an expert or we have growing and developing expertise mm-hmm. in the process of human change. We have, mm-hmm. we, or we train and we hopefully continue to train ourselves and learn and grow in f- finding ways that we can guide a client to understand themselves better, to be more aware of the variety of internal resources they have so yeah. they can take a closer, more informed, more aware look Mm-hmm. at what they're struggling with so that they can come to a better decision. We certainly do yeah. have some expertise or skills in that regard or, or, or we shouldn't be, shouldn't be uh, you know, accepting money. Yeah. <laughs> right. That, that would say, hey, you don't deserve to be in this role. Um, right. So we have that, that expertise there. But I think that Sometimes it can 
it can be um, confusing uh, for some people that their perception might be that the therapist is the expert and that that translate to they know what's best for the client and what's going on with that client. Um, well, I do think there are some, I think there's some, some approaches or some schools of thought or just some personalities mm. <laughs> uh, that uh, kind of reinforce that. Yeah. The idea of irrational beliefs. Who's who's to determine what beliefs are rational or irrational? Now that doesn't mean we don't give feedback or challenge someone or say, you know, I think if you, you know, I think if you think about things this way, it looks like it's getting into some troubles or causing some problems. What, what do you, what do you think? Uh, but there's certainly a lot of different ways to live one's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just reading a, uh, you know, editorial in the New York times today, kind of challenging, sharply the this whole concept of codependency whether that's a mm. thing or not and whether it's a certainly whether it's a disease and and a, a whole lot of uh, you know our profession and treatment programs have embraced this idea of codependency which may or may not even be a valid idea and i think throughout history throughout cultures we see di- very different ideas are embraced about what it means to be a uh, uh, a healthy human living the right way and ideas about mm-hmm. dependence or interdependence or independence mm-hmm. obviously vary widely across cultures and so right. the danger of getting into an expert role is really believing that you know mm-hmm. what's best for the client and we can't avoid thinking that sure but, uh, and and again, I don't think we should restrain ourselves unduly from sharing our reactions and feedback with the client of what we observe, but with some humility and with some questioning, mm-hmm. here's something I'm noticing, I'm thinking about, you know, how does that strike you? And then watching very carefully how they react. Mm-hmm. So I think about that too with with self-disclosure. You know, one of the most powerful ways of using self-disclosure, I believe, and my father's certainly written a lot about, is in the here and now of the therapeutic relationship mm-hmm. and a, keeping attuned to your feelings and sensations mm-hmm. as you work with a client. You know, if you experience a client and is is talking and they they're kind of smiling but they're telling you something that's you know quite sad or tragic even you know saying i notice Mm -hmm. you're smiling but you're telling me something sad and in fact uh, i notice i'm feeling really moved as i hear that Mm -hmm. yeah and then noticing what happens to them when you say that and and inviting what you know well what are your, what are your reactions as i say that those are powerful moments 
in the room. I, I think really what I hear you speaking of is how we become the instrument in the, in the therapeutic exchange. If we're really listening and understanding our sensations in response to what's happening, and then we're interpreting that and, you know, sharing that back. It's like a, a musical exchange, if you will. Yeah, I would say we are, well, we are an instrument. In yeah, an our, instrument. Our, our, our feelings, our bodily sensations, mm -hmm. as well as our thoughts are, mm -hmm. are all important parts of ourselves as they are parts of our clients. Mm -hmm. And we want to use all of them. Mm -hmm. um, and you say interpretation, that's so, an interesting term that has a lot of history to it. Mm -hmm. That's true. And certainly in, in the, I talked about Freud and making, making a, what he would consider a brilliant interpretation. And I think, and a lot of traditional psychoanalytic work was very much focused on transference interpretations, which mm -hmm. was their language of noticing what's happening between the therapist and the client, even yeah. if we have a different model of it and a, this idea of a blank slate, and then reflecting that back to the client. The, the, the strong difference I would have is uh, this idea of this interpretation being an expert interpretation and being some sort of truth. Oh, yeah. No, no. I'm noticing something or here's a thought I have, or here's a feeling I have. Mm -hmm. Let me share it with you, you know, tentatively and invite to hear your reaction. And the client may say, yeah, that really, oh, wow. That, that I, that really has an impact when you say it, that has some meaning for me. Or they may say well, that interesting idea, doc, but that." <laughs> that's really feels like it's missing the boat mm -hmm. and then oh, well, what's it like for you for me to really miss the boat mm -hmm. you're paying mm -hmm. you're paying me good money to try to try to really understand and help you I, how does it feel that i miss so badly i think like those those moments in the therapy relationship um, really enhance and and grow the relationship if done well. When we do miss the boat and we're able to own that and reflect that and share in that conversation with the client, um, it can make a big difference because. For a lot of us, it's hard when we don't feel understood and, and seen. And of course, in therapy, people really expect us to be able to see them and you know, validate their experience and understand them. Well, they hope. They do. They hope <laughs> Some clients may not expect it. They may, that may, they may have had such a lifelong experience of feeling misunderstood by their parents, by others that mm -hmm. they, as you know, clients often come to us in an ambivalent state mm -hmm. or they may have 
thought about coming to therapy for year months or years so they're that's true obviously ambivalent mm -hmm. about it and they may come out of desperation with very limited hope but obviously some hope right gets them to to come in the door or, or open the screen open their computer screen <laughs> yeah <laughs> completely I say, different i was gonna i was gonna say pick up the phone and call but all of these are are getting dated yeah how many, how many clients make the initial contact via phone versus email yeah oh <laughs> how gosh rapid, and how rapidly that has changed in the last five years so true um yeah a lot of people email or like use the website to send a message versus call and then you have to call them um i find that most of the calls that come in are spammy stuff trying to sell you something uh, an example yeah. of how you know 10 years ago if a therapist got an inquiry by email he might have he or she might have thought that was a little strange and and uh, i know i i did a presentation Oh, 10, 15, 15 years ago. Uh, and I did a case presentation and, and referred to an email exchange I had with the client. And there some a number of therapists were very concerned about that. Had I broken boundaries by connecting with the client between the sessions in email? Mm -hmm. And now that's obviously very commonplace. Each mm -hmm. therapist may have their preference or the guidelines for how they like to do that, but it's and the, the you know at one point that seemed odd or pathological, and now it's normal. <laughs> times times change, so yeah, I I can recall um, not too long ago in the distant past where many people thought it would just be like the worst, most damaging thing that you could do to conduct supervision over video conferencing or therapy over video conferencing, that there's just no way possible that that could happen, that it would be effective and that it would be detrimental to the work, um, which obviously now after the pandemic experience, um, many things have changed so much so that um, many insurance uh, companies are paying for this type of work where they weren't before. I should hope so, or we're going to have an even bigger mental health crisis than we uh, seem to be having. Right. So yeah. I think it's, uh, these are all good things just to check your assumptions at the door. Look, look how fast the world can change and things that we thought were abnormal can be normal and, uh, and so on. So we think about that for our clients as well, things that they may think are impossible mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. Maybe they aren't. Maybe they aren't that impossible. Right. It goes back to your beginning statement that when I was talking about time and said, I don't think it's really an issue of time. It's a, it's about the mindset that we carry. Um, just frames every situation, what's possible, what's not possible. Yeah. Well, one, one additional thought I had, just going back a few minutes, you're talking about 
using your own reactions, emotions as part of the therapy, sharing, sharing them with your client. And that's in, in furtherance of, of the therapeutic relationship. I'd say that's one of the reasons That's one of the reasons that you might self-disclose or, or, or share. Mm -hmm. It's a way, and also just tune into what's happening between you and the client. Check out with them yeah. how it's going, how it felt for you to say one thing or other. Checking out at the end of the session, how did that session go? What what felt good? Uh, is there anything at all that? that felt uncomfortable or any red flags, certainly, especially, you know, early in therapy, the first session or, or two, you really want to solicit their input and, and model for them that that's part of, mm -hmm. part of, part of this unusual conversation that therapy is that's different than other conversations mm -hmm. uh, that they have in their life. Uh, one of the things you do is really tune in to pay attention to your relationship. And one reason, as you rightly said, it was because you want to make sure it's as good a relationship as possible. Mm -hmm. um, for, I feel like going down a decision tree. And one reason is that is because you want the, you want to have a good relationship. If you have a good solid foundation, as we all know, that's, that's the most important factor to uh, to therapeutic success. And part of that is is kind of the corrective for some clients, just the corrective emotional experience of right. having a close, warm, supportive relationship where they can talk about difficult things and you're not going to berate them or humiliate them or try to get your own needs met. But also, it's a social microcosm. Since most clients, uh, whatever their presenting issue is, in most of the cases, that presenting issue revolves largely about relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and even if it's something circumscribed like a panic attack, well, the, that may be because they have panic attacks in socially anxious situations. So there's almost always a relational component to why they're wanting some help from you. And so you can use the, the therapeutic relationship kind of as a microcosm or mini social laboratory to take a look how they respond to you, how they respond to different interactions, mm -hmm. how they respond if you miss them somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Do they, are they able to say, no, I don't, I, I think you, I, I don't quite agree with that. Actually, this feels right to me and it kind of doesn't really ruffle their feathers or if they really get deflated because you know or if they really it's the idea of challenging you or telling you that you you may have misconstrued something is that is so scary and threatening to them that they'll just, they just you know tell you everything's great when when it's not right everything's everything gives more information about what's happening yeah. 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 And then we're always in the constant position of attending to multiple sources of information, what the client says, mm -hmm. what they look like as they say it, what they sound like as they say it, what their body's doing as they say it, 
how you're feeling or reacting mm -hmm. as they say it. Yeah. And then what they're doing during the, in their real life outside of the session. You know, if you're having great, what you think of is great work going on and they're open and vulnerable and exploring things and, you know, but week after week after week, they're not making any changes in their life in the, in the things that are concerning them. <laughs> That's another very important piece of data. And you're attending to all of this data and you're always making choices of, you know, which one do you kind of move into or, uh, and that's, you know, back to the initial discussion of creativity. That's mm -hmm. one of the very creative things about therapy is you're, you're, it's like this conversation between you and me. I, I don't know what, you know, maybe I know what I'm going to say for the next sentence, but after that, I'm not really sure. It's, 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 this conversation is being created in real time. Yeah, I think therapy, um, no matter what way you practice, is a creative endeavor. And it's a co-creative endeavor uh, because it's not just the one individual. It might be, you know, at least two individuals, <laughs> um, but it could be a group of individuals. And then there's, you know, multiple people creating together in that space, whether that's conversation or whether that's a narrative or a drama or, um, you know, art, art exchange. Um, it's always creative. Yeah. And speaking of multiple people, one thing that, uh, uh, you know, online session creates an easier opportunity for, there's always the opportunity, but bringing other people into the session. And uh, I, I think that's another thing I think we've been pretty restricted to. You know, we have individual therapy, which is kind of the default. Mm -hmm. And then we have couples therapy, which kind of comes pretty naturally if someone's having, you know, marital conflicts or relational conflicts with their primary partner. We think of couples therapy, group therapy, you know, something my father's been big, big proponent of, and, and I am as well, you know, that's kind of a stepchild. We don't, we don't really think of it. Most, most therapists don't do group therapy, certainly in private practice. And, uh, you know, I think it should be much more widely done. It's such a powerful format. Uh, you know, and then there's family therapy, again, very small subset of therapists are really doing family therapy. True. Uh, but why not? It's so much, you know, when I was in the old days in full-time practice and seeing people in the office, if if someone had a, a sibling or someone in town and there was some meaningful things going on with that relationship, I would I would invite that person into the office and it was mm -hmm. always learn something, whether you did something, quote, therapeutic or not, you would just get a richer idea of that person. Likewise, I would often have them bring in their spouse, whether or not they had a big conflict with their spouse or not, mm -hmm. just because I get more. And online, it's easy. I had a client recently. She was she, she was out of town visiting her father. And I said, well, why don't you bring your father and love to meet him? And we ended up having a very deep, meaningful mm -hmm. session. And not that they had a big conflict that I was helping them work on, just I learned so much about this client. And I think 
she appreciated that I was interested in getting to know mm -hmm. the significant part of her life, which is her father and her relationship with her father. And I certainly felt like after that, I had a just a much fuller picture of her. Yeah. I haven't seen or heard people really talking about that, but I think it's, uh, it's, uh, I think it's something that, that should be done a lot more. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that you bring it up and it's making me think about a variety of experiences, um, and conversations where, you know, people have this very kind of rigid perspective that no, you don't, bring other people in, but if the client is open to it and that's what they want, well, why not? Um, <laughs> it's, it's okay. I, I recently had somebody come and their aunt was in town, um, who's only around, but, uh, like once or twice a year, but very close to them and they wanted to bring them in. Okay. <laughs> It's fine. Um, and you do, you always learn. So you learn so much more about the client and their experience. And it gives you a direct observation to how they relate within their family, the support that they have, or maybe don't. Um, I, I, yeah, I recall a client I saw many years ago and he, he was very depressed and passive and you know, just didn't have agency in his life. And uh, his brother was in town. I had him, his brother come in and he just lashed into his brother. And I saw this whole different side of him that I'd never seen before. He had this anger and this aggression and, and this agency and potency that, that, that I, I would have never gotten to probably or would, uh, and similarly, I've had people that in individual therapy, I bring into group therapy and see a whole other side of them that, that, uh, hadn't seen talking about this idea of limitations and how assumptions that restrain us. Mm -hmm. I have this image of like Star Trek. I know in one of the, one of the series, they have this, this psychic, whatever her, her job title is, but <laughs> you could imagine in some kind of futuristic or different society where you have different roles and you have you have a wise man or a curandero or someone whose job it is to help help out the people people aspects of society i mean we have engineers and we have uh you know we have politicians and we have people who make the roads and we have, you know, in our society, we, we have priests and, mm -hmm. and religious leaders, and we have therapists who, you know, are the designated mental health experts, but our role is, is kind of limited. I know another, you know, in the 60s and 70s, there's more interest in community psychology, but that's never really taken hold. We have social workers who try to do more community work, but, um, you know, if you could, if you could make it up, what would be your role be? Would you be sitting in your office or would you be wandering the streets would you mm. be available for if people were having conflicts with their family or, or with their neighbors um no obviously we live in the real world and we have to get paid and mm -hmm. uh, but just kind of as a thought experiment it's interesting to think what 
you know, what could we do that's maximally effective? Again, that may or may not be in the 50 minute per hour uh, uh, yeah. paradigm. I do think that there are, are, you know, a small percentage of therapists that, and I learned about this even before, like the technology folks kind of came around with uh, their interpretation of availability of the therapist and access, but people doing like concierge therapy where they um, contract with, you know, only a handful of families and, um, and then they're available for, you know, however many number of hours they'll go to the home and they'll navigate family conflict in vivo. And, and when I learned about that, I was like, oh my gosh, when nobody ever talked about that as an option in school, but I think that's really interesting. And I think that there is something different that happens when you do go into the client's home and facilitate in their space versus facilitating in our space. Right. And obviously online, we, in a sense, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, we're in each other's space in a, in a different way when, when yeah. we're coming into our office and you know, can we use that? Do can we look around their room? Can they give us a tour through their house? Can mm -hmm. they take us out to their, you know, say, say they're really into gardening and they're meet they're, their pets. Bring them a lot of pleasure. Yeah. Let's go out and see. Let's go ahead and see your garden. Show mm -hmm. me your carrots. Yeah, no, it's really cool. Um, I'm dying to ask you, have you ever heard of family group therapy in your experience where um, it's not just like one family, it's multiple families in group therapy? I have heard heard of this uh, just like I've heard of you know group couples therapy I haven't had any direct experience or really indirect experience so uh, it's okay really, couldn't, couldn't really have anything intelligent or informed to say about it no I well I haven't met anybody else who has experienced it but I experienced it as a child um, with my family and um, but when I've talked to other people about it, other therapists about it, they're like, I've never heard of that. But I thought, well, with your expertise in group therapy, that maybe you, um, you would, you know, have a little more information, but I haven't found anybody else who's experienced it or is aware. Yeah, I guess just, again, my totally uninformed gut feeling is family therapy is challenging enough. And couples therapy is challenging enough. I'm not sure what would be gained by doing it in, in, a, in a group format. So uh, that's, that's my uninformed first reaction. Well, it was in the 80s. It was a long time ago. <laughs> um, and as a kid, that was probably my experience. I definitely hated having to go. I was uh -huh. not happy to be there. <laughs> and I, and at that time I thought I'm never going to be a therapist. This is stupid, <laughs> but here I am. Yeah. Um, but so if we could talk a little bit about 
how important creativity is to you in what you do, not just inside the therapy relationship, inside that work, but your own personal relationship with creativity and how that informs the other work that you do. Sure. I grew up not being drawn to or exposed to, you know, art much as we think of as art. That's certainly literature, yes, and did. I was a magician in high school, and that was certainly a very creative endeavor. I uh, spent hours reading through magic books and trying to learn tricks and then trying to maybe add some twists to them and then developing a performance based on that. So uh, that was something. Uh, but, you know, then I went, got, you know, went along with my life and, you know, went to school and did these things that you think you're doing. One, one thing I, that strikes me, and I've always been interested in kind of career issues and career counseling and how you, you know, decide what, what you want to do as, as a living and looking, and something I advise my clients to do or support, looking back on your life, what are the moments that felt most exciting to you or you, or you felt most alive or, mm. or fun or whatever? So when I think back, look back on college, I studied you know, many things, but it had to have a major, which was economics. And, and I recall uh, at one point, We have in, in economics, you have something called a supply and a demand curve, and the uh, 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 demand curve is sloping downward, you know, left to right, and the supply curve is sloping upward. And and he was a uh, how shall we say uh, he was a character, the teach the te the economics teacher. He had been uh, trained as a concert pianist, but you know there 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 are only a handful of those who make a living. So he ended up be becoming an economist and. Uh, he would talk about the supply curve as this mythical beast. And, and, uh, and, and then he, he asked at one point for some volunteer for the next class to derive the supply curve, which has a certain meaning. But anyway, I, I had a, a girlfriend who was an artist and I had, I had her draw the supply curve in the shape of a, of a brontosaurus with a you know, long neck and head in a jungle scene. And I, and I had that covered up with, a, with one of those hang, hang pull down maps and I went up the next class and and was looking through the map as if I was searching for this mythical supply curve and I whipped up the mask the the map and revealed this this jungle scene and uh, although I didn't draw it myself I, I guess I imagined it and the class burst out laughing and I don't think the professor was too pleased but you know, <laughs> there are little moments like that that actually those are actually stand out to me more than some this class I took on macroeconomics or some paper I wrote. And all of that to say, I think if we think about what are the things in life that kind of turn us on, mm -hmm. you know, th those are some guideposts. And it wasn't until I was uh, 40 or so, I ended up sketching a few little stick figure cartoons. Uh, and one of the first ones was a stick figure of a cactus sitting on a sofa to, a, you know, talking to a therapist and saying, uh, 
I didn't come from what you would call a touchy feely family. <laughs> and then I ended up, you know, learning how to draw a little bit. I still can hardly draw. And then I, but uh, ended up starting painting oil paintings and abstracts. And now uh, somehow I got into doing metal sculptures and so cool. grind, grinding metal and cutting it and welding it. And, you know, I, uh, something I would have never imagined. I didn't, didn't grow up doing anything with my hands and, and it just makes me realize how a how limitless our potential is. I mean, that's the last mm. thing in my life I would have thought I would be doing. And you think of children; they can, you know, they can sing, they can dance. You know, suddenly, suddenly, when you're twelve or fifteen, you ask. You ask kids and right. adults, no, I don't know how, I don't know how to sing. I, I don't know how to dance. I don't know how to draw. Well, mm -hmm. of course, and anyone can sing and draw and dance. Some people, it's just, some people are more naturally inclined to one or the other, or, or can get better at it uh, than others. So I can say for me, it's been a great surprise and source of joy that I've been able to create some things. And every now and then I create something that I, that I'm pretty happy with. And it, again, going back to therapy, it, it a makes me think about how can I be creative in, in therapy? How can, how can I get a client to think about things that it turns out that's kind of been a theme of our discussion. What, what are, <laughs> what are our limitations are, what are perceived limitations? And right. How, Obviously, there are limitations in life. You can't just, you can't just, you know, fly. <laughs> you, can't, you know, people people have real life situations and mm -hmm. tragedies and economic realities that they have to deal with, and uh, but but they also have some constraints that are that are are have some malleability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things I love about art and the creative process is like challenging oneself to do things with limited materials, really creating limitations in order to find a creative solution and think about things from a different perspective, right? If you all of a sudden don't have access to that one material that you're so used to creating with, now it forces you to have a new experience and really grow and say like, oh, like I was holding myself back because I thought I had to have that material, but I realize I don't. I, there are other ways and, and maybe I actually like this other way better. Just cool. So if people wanted to check out some of your creative work, where could they find it, Victor? Yeah, uh, my, the cartoons, as you mentioned, are, are on psychotherapy.net. And then I have some of my uh, personal artwork on my own uh, website, which is SF, like San Francisco, psychologist sfpsychologist.com. I've had some technical issues in, in uh, adding, adding some new photos to that site. So I will, this will spur Aww. me to uh, uh, see if I can resolve that and see if I can put up some of my latest works 
there's some lovely pieces on there now. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today and share about your experience and your cartoons and, um, and the work of therapy and, um, it's just been a real joy. So thank you so much. Well, we, I think we've had a delightful and creative conversation that's uh, meandered into areas that I wouldn't have expected. And that's, for me, that's, that's, uh, that's pleasurable and uh, hopefully will uh, contain some ideas that your listeners will find uh, useful or if not useful at least interesting yeah I hope so too I think that I think that is a worthwhile um, it's a worthwhile endeavor to really challenge how we've been limiting our thought about the way in which we do this work and how there really are so many other opportunities if we're able to allow ourselves to have these kinds of conversations. Um, so thank you so much for being willing to go there. You're, you're very welcome. Thanks so much for listening to the Creative Psychotherapist podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed listening to this conversation with Victor Yalom. Um, just if you get a chance, check out the show notes um, on the website where he shared some photos of the really cool um, furniture that he's made and um, his artwork. And I'm excited to share that with you all. And don't forget, check out psychotherapy.net if you want to learn from the masters and the founders in the field. Um, There's so many opportunities for really high quality educational um, development through this video library. And don't forget, use that promo code for $100 off. And that's Reina, R-E-I-N-A, 100-100. And it's lowercase. And if you're confused about it, I have it in the show notes for you too. All right, everybody, stay creative and take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Creative Psychotherapist. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For show notes, downloads, and additional resources, head over to the website at www.creativeclinicianscorner.com.